Well, good morning. It is so good to be here with you today. Last week, we began uh, a very special series of teaching times, messages, because we're in the season of Lent. And it is our hope that with this series that we have called Collide, that um, it will become clearer to us how what Jesus taught and what, we, what Jesus did is very much opposite of what the world encourages us to do. But I must confess to you, as we began this series last week, I was really having a little bit of a hard time making the connection between Lent and the image that you see on the screen and the words collide. Because what Jesus said and what Jesus did were very much in sync. They were congruent. They didn't conflict. But it wasn't until I listened to Pastor Bob speaking about loving our enemies that my mind went back and drifted to different times in my life when the world did not teach anything about loving enemies. I remembered when I was running for office, and I promise you, nowhere in the political process does the rule book say, love your opponent who's really your enemy. It doesn't work that way. But I went back even further to an example that's a little bit more serious, and forgive me if this makes you uncomfortable, but I remembered a time when I was at West Point at the Military Academy as a brand new freshman. They called us plebes or beasts, and we were in beast barracks, which was basic training, and part of instilling a warrior spirit in us was to teach us to do a thing called bayonet drills. And we would be out on a training field, and all of our gear and our steel pot helmets with our rifles held like this crouched and the bayonet point on the rifle and we would be running in place chanting blood 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 makes the grass grow okay um, and I understand that the military is instilling a warrior spirit we ask people to do fearful things and so I don't bring that story up as a criticism but wars and the need for armies and militaries, those are things of the world, not things of Christ. And what I have learned 40 years later, that it is not the blood that falls to the ground when we slay an enemy that makes us grow. It is the blood of our Savior Jesus Christ spilled on the cross that allows us to grow closer to God and to becoming the people that God calls us to be. And in that moment, as I was thinking of that last week, I realized that the word collide was an absolutely perfect description of where we need to go during Lent. And today's message is no different. Today's message is equally challenging because it teaches us that we're not supposed to strive for first place, but that Jesus said, finish last. And Jesus taught this lesson to his disciples in a way that actually embarrassed them terribly, I'm sure. If I can set the scene for you, if you could turn to, uh, to your Bibles in, in, uh, in Mark's, gospel, Mark's gospel, there will be a time where Jesus is on his road toward Jerusalem. It's already in his mind what's coming. And he's trying to use his last time here on earth in physical flesh to teach his disciples what it will mean 
to be leaders of a church that is yet to be born, and they are not learning his lessons very well. Even though uh, Peter and John and James have seen Jesus transfigured, there's still silliness going on among them that's focused on the world's lessons. And so we turn today to uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, and I'm going to read to you from the message. And, And this is what happened. They came to Capernaum. When he was safe at home, he asked them, what were you discussing on the road? The silence was deafening. They had been arguing with one another over who among them was the greatest. He sat down and summoned the twelve. So you want first place? Then take the last place. Be the servant of all. As we'll see shortly, they really didn't understand that lesson. And that was one of many lessons that Jesus taught to try to convert these fleshy, earthly disciple wannabes who really didn't know what it was all about yet into people who would be able to be the basis for growing his church after he left us. Jesus taught them many other things. If we continue on in the reading that I just, uh, that I just completed, Jesus went on to use an, as an example these words. First, he put a child in the middle of the room. Then cradling the little one in his arms, he said, whoever embraces one of these children as I do embraces me, and far more than me, God who sent me. That was unheard of in those days. Children were not esteemed and, and looked upon with the favor that we look upon children today. In those days, children were really the property of their parents, primarily their father, They had no status. They had no rights. And in fact, as Jesus spoke these words, he was probably speaking in Aramaic. And the Aramaic word that he would have used for child was the same word that meant servant. And Jesus' point in that, he he wasn't saying, you know, this little child is innocent and pure and wonderful and you need to be like him. He was talking about servanthood. He was trying to teach the disciples that just as this child, just as a servant, has no status of his or her own, just as they get their status and identity from their master or their father, you are to get your identities. You are to get your purpose from your master or your father. And what you do is to reflect favorably upon that father or that master. And that lesson matters today because what Jesus is telling us is how we behave out in the world tells the world about who God is. And the message that we send is not always a good one if our identity is truly not from God. Jesus also taught the disciples as he continued in his teaching of them about inclusiveness rather than being exclusive. One of the disciples, John, spoke up during the teaching. He interrupted Jesus and John said, Teacher, we saw a man using your name to expel demons and we stopped him because he wasn't in our group. Jesus wasn't pleased 
Don't stop him. No one can use my name to do something good and powerful and in the next breath cut me down. What was that disciple worried about? He wasn't in our group. Who's not in our group today? Jesus taught that spiritual wealth doesn't look anything like the world's riches. A lesson he tried to convey to the rich young ruler when he said, sell all your possessions and then come and follow me. Because he knew that the wealth itself wasn't bad, but the fact that that rich young ruler was idolizing his wealth was keeping him from being who God wanted him to be. And yet even after all that time that they listened to Jesus, if you step ahead to just the next chapter of Mark, you'll find in chapter 10 that they forgot everything Jesus had talked to them about, about being last. Again, unbelievably, they sought status when two of the disciples asked to sit at Jesus' left and right hand. They, appro they approached him privately and said, Lord, please let, let one of us sit at your right hand and one sit at your left hand. Those were positions of prestige and power. They hadn't heard anything Jesus said. Mark describes the story this way. He says, when the other ten heard of this conversation, they lost their tempers with James and John, those who were the two who made the request. Jesus got them together to settle things down. And he said, you've observed how godless rulers throw their weight around. And when people get a little power, how quickly it goes to their heads. It's not going to be that way with you. Whoever wants to be great must become a servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. You know, yesterday was the kind of Saturday that I call an uh-oh Saturday. I was telling Pastor Bob about that this morning. An uh-oh Saturday happens when you sit down to practice your sermon, and it's just not right. When you realize that your sermon is a speech that came from you about a scripture, and that you can't find anywhere in it the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So yesterday was uh, an uh-oh Saturday for me, and I had to do some work on this message. And to do that work, I realized that a very special conversation that I had had Friday night with a dear friend, you know, one of those girlfriend kind of conversations that only happens once in a while, and you just know that God is speaking to you through your friend, Words of our conversation came to mind, and I had been talking to her about um, some doubts that I've been feeling about ministry, of all things. I mean, here you are, you're finally almost to the finish line. I could practically feel the bishop's hands on my head, and I'm having doubts about things, and I confessed something to her that I'd never said to anybody. I'm pretty sure I've never even said this to Pastor Bob, and what I said to her is, you know, when I think about my call to ministry, when I first got it, I worked in the courthouse. I had this position that was kind of important. God called me to ministry, and to answer that call, I was really going to have to take the life I was building with Bruce and turn it upside down. 
But there was a part of my motivation for saying yes to God that wasn't holy and it wasn't pure. I was thinking to myself, wow, wouldn't people think I was really something if I gave all this up to be a minister? They would really know that I wasn't selfish. They would know that, that I was giving up all this stuff to be a lowly servant of God. And there was nothing holy about that thought because it was filled with prideful ambition about what others would think of me. Not at all about how God was calling me to serve. But God has a way of fixing that stuff. Even as you go through the process for ministry, even when other human beings don't discover these little secrets and these guilty flaws, God has a way of burning away that dross in the gold. And so in the last eight years, I've realized that how I envisioned the world and ministry, seeing me in ministry, isn't at all how it turned out. I had planned to be someone who was going to, as a minister, help connect the church to public schools and we were going to save all those poor kids living in poverty and I was going to change their lives. And then I found out I can't relate to kids at all. I didn't raise any kids. My stepchildren were adults when I married Bruce. My grandkids grew up in another town and when little kids see me in school or when I see middle schoolers, we look at each other's like one of us is from Mars and one of us is from Venus. It didn't work out that way. I was going to be someone who was out there like Mother Teresa and John Wesley and you know what? Today I find myself doing lots of the things that I used to do in the courthouse. I became your executive pastor not long ago, and you know, I'm, I'm looking at budgets and revenue and, and air conditioners that aren't working or a leak in a ceiling and the kitchen inspection that's coming up and if anything in the freezer has mold on it. And there's just not any glory in it, and I realize that God has been saying to me, okay, Pam Dubo, you went out and chased your career and you learned how to do tasks with budgets and you managed people. And no, I'm not going to send you out to be Mother Teresa from St. Paul. I want you to work on the budget because you know how. And that's a task that needs to be done. And I need you to do that task for me, not because it's going to bring you glory, but because it's going to help your church get where she needs to be so that people who have the gifts that you don't have can go in the world and do the things that you wanted to do because if you did those things, you wouldn't be humble at all. That's a really tough conversation to have with yourself and one of your best friends when you're just a couple months from reaching what seems like the finish line, but it's really just another starting line. You know, how did, how did Jesus demonstrate to us that the first would be last and the last would be first? Well, he did God's will even when God's will got him in trouble with the authorities. 
He loved people who other people loathed. The sinner, the tax collector, who used to be the property appraiser. (laughs) He loved the adulteress. He loved the least, the lost, and the leper. He sacrificed for others with a sacrifice that we can't even begin to imagine. Jesus didn't go from a job in the courthouse to serving people. He came from heaven, God in the flesh, to show us the way, to spill his blood for us on the cross. He went from the highest place, the best place, the most perfect place there is, where he was Lord of all, to come to us and to suffer so that we could find our way to him. And I don't know a more selfless example of service, of lowliness, of last place. What's more last place than being a naked man hanging on a cross while people hurl insults at you, including two thieves that are hung on either side. What is more last place than that? And yet by taking last place, Jesus did not stay there. We know that three days later, the last became first so that we could be saved. We know this. You know, there's lots of stories. There's lots and lots of stories um, from biblical times that didn't make it into the Bible. I read a story once. Maybe it was a fable, but it helps make the point better than I'm making it today. There was this guy during Solomon's day. He was a stone cutter. He was helping to cut the stones out of rocks, the blocks, that would build a temple where people could gather to worship God. He was cutting out stones to build a temple where God would dwell among his people, a place that would glorify God. But it was dirty work. His clothes were tattered and they were always covered with rock dust. And one day while he was working, chipping away at stones, The king rode by in his chariot in all his splendor with all his wealth and his armor and his soldiers around him and he was powerful and the people respected him and admired him and the stonecutter said, God, I wish I could be the king. And God let him become the king. And for a while he had that position and that power but he noticed that every day in the afternoon around two or three o'clock, It got really, really hot as the sun beat down, you know, in the desert, in the Middle East. And it was hot and dusty. And even though he was the king, his thirst was unquenchable and he was uncomfortable. And he said, God, let me be the sun because the sun can even lord it over me, the king. And God let him become the sun. And he beat down his heat on the earth and the people were hot and he knew that he was powerful as the sun. But then one day, 
A whole bunch of clouds got between the sun and the earth. And the earth had shade. And the clouds threw the rain down on the earth. And it watered the crops and the crops grew. And the rain gathered into streams that became rivers. And the sun realized that he'd been trumped by the clouds. And he said, God, please let me be a cloud and give rain. And God let him become a cloud. And he rained upon the earth. And then one day as the rain was falling and a flood was taking place and the cloud was feeling pretty powerful, putting those people in their place, he noticed that next to the river there was a formation of big rocks and the rocks weren't moving at all. Though all the water that those clouds could throw down on the earth couldn't budge those immovable rocks. And the cloud said, God, let me be a rock. Let me be a stone. I'll be the strongest, toughest thing there is. And so God, let him become a stone. And no matter what rain came, that stone never budged. No matter how hot the sun was beating down, didn't affect that rock at all. And then one day, the rock felt something, and he looked. And there was this man standing there in tattered clothes with a chisel and a hammer. And the man was chipping away at the rock. And he was cutting blocks out of the rock. And the rock was becoming smaller, and those blocks were being hauled away to become part of a building in the distance. And the rock said, God, that man is cutting me apart and turning me into something else. Let me be a stone cutter. And finally, the man was content. The trouble with ambition is it's an appetite that can never be satisfied. Until we find a place in our hearts where what we do for other people matters more than anything else we do. We don't do it for a congregation to look at us and say, wow, isn't he good or isn't she good? We do it because it epitomizes loving our neighbors. It allows us to be the people who God wants us to be. You see, when the Olympics take place, they don't give gold and silver and bronze for last place. On the football field, it's not the water boy who gets the most valuable player award. In the Jesus Football League, in the Jesus Olympics, the loser, the water boy, the one who finishes last is the big winner. Ambition will ruin us. And we can be ambitious right here in the church. If we truly want to be last and serve everyone, the world would be a much better place. If we decided to be the part of Team Jesus in the Jesus Olympics, well, 
all the ec economic problems of the world would go away because everybody would care about others' needs more than their own and there would be no purpose to storing up treasures on earth. If all of us decided to be on Team Jesus in the Olympics, there would be no more political problems because every public servant, elected official, government person, would care about what was doing good for all instead of doing things that would gain the next position or the next job. If all of us played on Team Jesus, there would be no more divisiveness in the church because we wouldn't spend our time judging others we wouldn't spend our time deciding who was worthy. We wouldn't spend our time thinking about who should be included or excluded. We wouldn't be self-righteous. We would finally understand what it means to have our righteousness presented to us as a gift by the one who spilled his blood on the cross. My prayer for you today, and my prayer for me today as well, is that God will never leave us content with the earth's ambitions for us, with society's goals becoming our goals. I hope that every single time every one of us does something that looks good, but that is done with an ulterior motive or agenda. I hope that we discover that and that we get that little jab that only the Holy Spirit can give and that we get our noses pointed back in the right direction. I mean, this is the season of repentance, of changing directions. My prayer for all of you is that you have a friend who will speak the truth and love when you need to hear hard things. And that by their words coming from God to their lips, that what's left in you that isn't pure and true and holy, what's left in you that is personally ambitious and selfish will be cut away. Because Jesus said that the only way we can become first is to become last. The only way we can become first is to learn to be the stonecutter who was finally content.